0: This episode of the Big Head Chats podcast on the On The Pine Sports Network is brought to you by Mulca and Co. Marketing. For all your marketing needs, Gav and the team have you covered. They do it all, including making our new website. They made the process of creating and continually editing a website super easy, and the end result? Well, I'll let you check it out for yourself at www.onthepinesports.com.au. They also build online stores using Shopify. In these COVID-19 times, when going online has been a must for some businesses, Gavin the guys know how to get you there check out their latest store at www.wardrobedbythesea.com.au now some podcasts might give you a little discount code but I'm not quite there yet so keep listening and maybe I will be one day but anyway you should check them out at wwwmolkaycomau marketing that's wwwmolkaycomau slash marketing now to bigger chats let's go Well, he's one of the winningest coaches in Australian basketball history, an NBL champion, three-time Olympic coach, a Commonwealth Games gold medalist, and a two-time champion coach of my hometown team, the Ballarat Miners. His name is Brendan Joyce, and he joins me today. Brendan, welcome to the Big Head Chats podcast. Thanks for coming in.
1: Yeah, no worries, sorry.
0: Um Now, you're currently Director of Coaching in Ballarat and the head coach of the Miners, um, but no season going on through COVID. Um what have you been doing to keep yourself busy?
1: Yeah, look, the, the most important thing is, especially of late, is reaching out to the players, uh, the NBL 1 players, uh, the miners, just checking in how they're going. And nothing to do with basketball, uh, but just checking how they're going. And You know, they all some work, some don't. You know, some are frustrated, probably more frustrated than others, in particular the guys are trying to make the NBL team or make a NBL team like Daniel Klein and Shorty. Um, you know, Shorty's been signed as a developer player, but I know he had his heart set on hopefully getting a, a full-time contract. But uh, it's, it's the way it's ended up. But uh, a number of the guys like Daniel's coming off a, an Achilles injury, so he's into six months now. I think just about next week is his rehab. And uh, you know, most of, the, most of the guys either work or go to school, apart from those guys still trying to make it in the NBL. So... Um, but just checking in, I think it's frustrating for everybody. Um, in regards to the juniors, yeah, director coaching and uh, involved in, you know, assisting the coaches here in Ballarat, the representative coaches with their development and actually helping out some of the domestic coaches as well. But also, um, you know, part of the role is to oversee the um, development program for our rep kids and, and they've had their season shut down as well. So, you know, I, I think it's pretty tough all around. You know, we've had Two lockdowns, the first lockdown, I think everybody got through that pretty well. And what we've endeavoured to do during these lockdowns is is I've I've kept up the coach education, trying to keep the coaches engaged through online coaching seminars and involving some of our own coaches and getting them to obviously contribute to that. And that's been, you know, really good. And with the second lockdown, obviously, um, you know, it's tough to to re-engage again with that. But so what we're trying to do is communicate with the coaches and get them ready so hopefully the new season. So the tryouts, the way Victoria and the Basketball Association have said that they want to start BJBL in, in the first week of November. Hopefully it will get to that with the way COVID numbers are dropping now, but I, I, I probably see it more middle of November, but I think the kids are just itching to get back on the court. You know, they were on the court domestically for two weeks, but realistically our, our rep program hasn't been engaged since the middle of March. We have engaged them through online drills, uh, challenges. Uh, we've done a good job of that. But, you know, there's nothing like getting on the court, as you know, Ollie. So we've tried to stay busy. we are all, all had our hours cut, including me. So we're just trying to contribute, engage, the kids and the coaches with those limited hours with online programs.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, I, uh, I'm missing my... Local domestic games, just in the in the in the men's competitions down here in Melbourne. Um, so I understand <clears throat> the the players paying, because there's nothing like actually being out on the floor and, and playing. So the key word there is hope. We hope that it's all back to semi normal uh, by the end of the year, but um, we'll wait and see. Now, Brendan, we we discussed before you came on about your playing day. So often when you've done something at such a high level for as long as you have people might forget about your your other achievements, your other life, you might call it, uh, in sport. So you, you were quite the player. You played in the inaugural NBL season for Wadding. You were the all-time assist leader in the NBL for many years. Um, do you want to just take this time to remind everyone uh, of the player that you once <laughs> were? <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, the older we get, the better we were. Uh, <laughs> yeah, legend has it. But, uh, yeah, fortunate to... Uh, I played about 289 games and... You know, I captained uh, another one Spectres for, a, I think it was a seven-year period, and was fortunate to captain um, the Westside Melbourne Saints, who later became the South East Melbourne Magic, who became the Titans, who are now part of Melbourne United. So for those of you know, who are listening, once upon a time, we actually had four teams in Melbourne, up to the Long Supercats in the NBL, and that was the Melbourne Tigers, North Melbourne Giants, uh, the St Kilda, Westside Melbourne Saints, and the Specters. Another one Spectres, as you say which also changed their name just from a sponsorship and regional point of view uh, to the Eastside Spectres. So, yeah, it was a wonderful years. Uh, played in an NBL Grand Final, and, you know, that's uh, a memory that stays with me. Uh, it was a loss, um, but it probably helped me in regard to preparation when I became a coach uh, and coaching the Wollongong Hawks, or now Illawarra Hawks, or The Hawks, they changed their name, uh, to their first NBL championships, So, um, you know, all, all that, um, realistically, from a playing point of view, fortunately, fortunate to play in a couple of NBL All-Star games, they were highlights. Uh, you know, we had full houses at the Glass House and celebrities back then and getting out of limousines, it was massive. And uh, they, they, they were some of the highlights as well, those NBL All-Star games. And they were for real because people will remember in the 80s it was the late 80s I think 88 and 89 I played in those all-star games we, we, we took it serious we, we certainly had a lot of fun for three quarters but we took it serious especially in the last quarter because each player made money if, if he'd won so <laughs> you know it wasn't it wasn't like a circus act it was legit basketball down the stretch in the last quarters, because we're all going to probably you know make, be given a paycheck so if they want them to be serious if they pay the players will take it serious but uh you know, fortunate to play with some great coaches, you know, uh, renowned coaches like uh, Colin DeBee, Brian Curl, Barry Barnes, who, who coached Australia a couple of Olympics, so, you know, I, I carry a piece of all those guys with me, Owen Ewan, another one as a kid, uh, had had a bit to do with him, so, Lindsay Gaze with the Australian squad, I was involved with Adrian Hurley, uh, just going to Australian camp, you learn a lot from all those coaches, so, I didn't know I was going to be a coach obviously when I was playing, but I remember Barry and Colin T D saying, you'll be a coach one day. And I said, oh, I remember saying, you've got to be kidding. I think it was about 26 or 27. And, um, at the end of the, uh, my playing career, uh, that's what I, I started to do. But I didn't think, uh, I'd last this long. You know, you go into a coaching career, you can just see how difficult it is. I thought to myself, if I coach five years, uh, that'd be fantastic. But, uh, you know, I ended up coaching 14 years in the NBL, and as you said, going to a couple of Olympics as well with the Boomers and, and become the Australian Open coach. So, but going back to the player career, played with some wonderful players, uh, had some wonderful times, and, uh, you know, didn't quite win a championship as a player, but made the finals on numerous occasions and lost the grand final. As I said, all that, all that though, uh, certainly helped me in the future in regard to when I got, you know, became a coach.
0: I think, uh, yeah, the the coaching. I don't know when I look at coaches, it almost seems like it's taking years off their life sometimes. So we'll uh, <laughs> we'll get to that uh, a little bit later as well because that's obviously such a huge part of your career. But I want to go back to the start. So Brendan, what I pride myself on is some research pre podcast. So I've checked out a bit about you and checked out your website, and uh, so it tells me that you received an offer from North Melbourne to play footy there. As a youngster, but you decided to go with the basketball. Um, what went into that decision? Was that sort of was footy one of the was, was footy a thing that you thought you could do and go down that path?
1: I guess that particular time, you know, I was in my team. Uh, from about 15, seventeen, You know, we used to have scouts come and watch play. I actually played for the Jakarta Football uh, Club in the Northern Districts as a junior, and uh, won a few best in Ferris and. Uh, Confess in Ferris and you know you didn't have many scouts but there's there a guy that a lot of people know that was the under 19 North Melbourne coach his name was Blake Jordan he actually coached Richmond for a long time uh, so in the success of the 60s he was an under 19 coach of the Tigers in the 60s and 70s I think it was and then he went to North Melbourne with Barassi. so you know we're talking the 70s here so I know that he used to come along to the games and watch and and we had a BFA team called Brunswick in the area. So back then you were you were zoned. You had to play for that team if you were zoned. And I've been a Collingwood supporter my whole life. I was born in Collingwood, and always if I, I, I to be honest, Ollie, if it hadn't been Collingwood knocking on the door, I probably would have changed it <laughs> <laughs> But uh, you know, at that time, I had two mates that were, you know were still friends today, and we played basketball together. Tony Shaw and I, about the same age. Uh, Plough, uh, Terry Wallace, is a year or so older, but we all played... Well, Tony played for Coburg, and and uh, and Terry played for Nanna-Wadding and Bully, but we played together. But we played together for Victoria Junior basketball team. So all of us at the same time um, were approached to either make a choice about footy and basketball, and as you know, a lot of kids have to make those choices today. So I, I really uh, try to put pressure on kids to make decisions. I think we were a bit fortunate... I think even Tony didn't really make a decision until he was about 10 back then. Um, but you do you do need to make it at probably 16 or 17. Otherwise, if you focus on all sports, you don't become great at one. And I chose basketball because I was always already training with the senior team. Uh, Barry Barnes, you know, was encouraging me, and Colin Cadiz telling me I was going to make it. So from a football point of view, you know, obviously. I was asked to go down and train with North Melbourne, and it just got to that point where I had to make a decision. And um, you know, I ended up choosing basketball. And it's interesting, Dad. My dad wasn't happy because he, he was more, you know, he's more of a footy player. Uh, he he wasn't real happy about me choosing basketball. But like uh, a lot of kids today, the athleticism and the, the skills um, are similar. And I really think, you know, anyone usually good at basketball, it ha- you know, has a tremendous awareness and just has extra time on the free field because of that spatial awareness and quick hands and quick feet and even if you're not a super sprinter you usually got you know you've got to be uh, really quick within your first one or two steps so I think that really enhanced my ability to play football so I was more of a midfielder half back while I used to get shifted at different positions but I was more more in the midfield when I played footy. Uh, but uh, yeah I, I it, it's interesting I at that point in time, I didn't know how, how good I'd be at footy. And the other two buddies, uh, not Rossy Smith, but Peter Smith, his older brother, Rossy Smith played 300 games for North Melbourne, or over North uh, at our club. But Peter Smith, his brother, who I was his captain, and another guy, Rodney Wright, Rodney Wright played for North Melbourne and Melbourne. Peter Smith went on to play over 100 games for North Melbourne and Brisbane. We all played together as well. So... I probably could have made it because I was definitely as good as those guys, but I ended up choosing basketball.
0: Uh, You're just talking then about the the traits that transfer from both sports. I think Scotty Pendery, as the commentators let us know, you'd know as a Collingwood supporter, every chance they get to discuss that he was a former basketballer, they'll bring it up. So um, that's obviously yeah, a, a key thing for, for these young kids. Um, talk to me to me about sort of the decision at the time because – footy was you know the established league that it was but there what was the go because the nbl was established in 79 for the inaugural season so what was the what was the setting for you know senior basketball in australia then for someone like you coming up was it was there a league you can go and play or did you have to maybe look to go overseas what was the sort of thinking there
1: yeah look we were pretty isolated back then it was more about you know trying to make the nbl and uh you know, even before then, we used to play in the Victorian Basketball Association, which was quite powerful and strong and really carried through to the mid 80s, to the late 80s. You know, you, you play NBL on the weekend and you play in the Victorian, or we call it VBA, Victorian Basketball Association Championship, Senior Championship on a Wednesday night. And that was as big, especially in the early 80s and 70s. If you won that, it was like recognised as, as big as the NBL, because all, all the, obviously, the NBL teams were in it, the Tigers, North Melbourne, as I mentioned before, St. Kilda, or the Saints, Geelong, uh, all the best teams of Victoria are in it, and it was just massive, so no, I played in four of those, we didn't talk about those, I played in four championships that we won, um, what was it, I think it was three with the Spectres and one with the Saints, so um, they're great memories as well, and used to be, you also, we had National Casino Championships, I actually played in the the last national senior championship, so I think it was in '84. And, um, you know, we played with Cal Bruton, uh, Bill Bill, R- you were Americans, were allowed to be picked in it, and you know, played for Victoria in that as a 21 year old, 22 year old. That's a great memory. So, look, that so you basically played two competitions, and on the weekends we played in the National League, but obviously we we're playing in front of small stadiums, but you know, then we started to move to the glass house. Canberra had the palace in the. Early 80s and, and basketball was really starting to explode. I remember one of the Americans saying to me, uh, he, he was about to retire in 82, 83. He goes, In the next few years, mate, you'll be playing in some pretty big stages. And I thought, you know, you couldn't see it, but then obviously by the late 80s, we were, you know, we were playing in Boondall, 15,000 people in Brisbane. Um, we were playing in uh, where else? Sydney Entertainment Center, 12, 14, So the game exploded from the mid 80s onwards. So but early days, you know, we played in the stadiums that pretty much the, the miners play in these days, the smaller stadiums that, um, but it was still popular. Like, you know, you talked about footy players. Paul Roos, who's you know, I played as a bit of a friend. He was he loved his basketball, and he had to choose footy and basketball, you know, although he still played for Fitzroy, he would come to finals when we played in finals. I remember him being in our rooms after we beat the North Melbourne Giants, I think it was in I think it was nineteen eighty, Eighty-seven, we come from twenty points behind, Spectres, and they're over the feet. And he, he was celebrating with us in the rooms that night with a few of the Fitzroy boys. So you know, it, the game was popular, uh, even though the early eighties weren't in the big stadiums. You know, we still, footy. The relationship between some of the footy players and it and the basketball players was pretty strong because most of us played both sports.
0: Well, that, yeah, that is one thing that, especially as a kid growing up in Ballarat, you know, the mon- the monodome wasn't. Isn't a huge stadium, but when it when when it's packed and the miners or the rush are, are pumping, then you know it almost feels like you're in a huge you know thousand people, ten thousand people stadium just because of how much noise you know they can make in in the small space.
1: Well, you know my first coaching job, as you know, was coaching the Ballarat Miners for three years, and we won two championships, and I've come back last year and. You know, what was really special last year is we got off to a great start. I think we had good crowds, with the excitement, but we pretty much had a full house every week, and we had a young team. Obviously, I had a pretty young team, had quite a few new players that were hungry, uh, and we probably, in our own minds, like we, we always wanted to make the finals and win it, but we didn't business, probably really at the beginning of having the season we did, but as you say, it was pretty exciting packing it out, and the best game for memory last year, believe it or not, for me wasn't a final. It was playing Geelong on that Wednesday night. I had to turn people away, uh, and uh, I don't know how many people we got in there, but it was a pretty special night playing the Geelong Cats last year.
0: Well, I do um, remember we
1: pretty much had a full house. You know, I, I yeah. like we had a full house nearly every week.
0: Um, well, I do remember. I don't want to bring up you know painful memories, but that final against Dunwadding I was uh, in the crowd that night, and. Um, you know, when they when you guys got on that roll and, and was starting to come back and Shorty you know, I'm obviously Shorty's biggest fan, he's one of my best friends, but once he got on a bit of a roll hitting some mid range jump shots, the crowd was just going bonkers. Um Well that's as loud as I know heard we it. came
1: from everything sticks in your mind and your memories and um, you know, I, I was saying to myself that, you know, we, we had any you know, we had a young group, like Shorty's still pretty young or as far as experience goes, playing in finals and and big games, and, and they were nervous, they might not admit it, but I could see it, they were nervous, and Shorty took a while to get going, because I was actually encouraged, really encouraging him to be aggressive, and it probably wasn't until we got down that all of a sudden I think uh, he's like, I've got to do something, but quite a few of them, we, I think we got down by about 12 at the start of the third, and then from that point on we just exploded, and then he started taking shots coming off, you know, we knew we knew part of their plan would be to back off him and sit under the paint, and he kept taking it, but... I kept saying, mate, shoot up, shoot, pull up jumper. He started to do that side. He hit three straight baskets. That thing's opened up. And as you know, we hit the last, uh, hit the front in the last quarter and a strange call. Like, you know, that goal ten, we got a rebound and they called goal ten and gave him back possession. Uh, that was interesting too, but you know, really a prayer from Shane McDonald with two seconds left on the clock, throwing up, really, really shoot three, had to throw it up. With two seconds left, went in and. That's probably what broke our back. But I, I think that game being what it told me, we needed to try and you know, probably bring in a little bit of experience to take the next step. But um, you know I, I actually didn't feel uh, let down or bad about it. You know, we gave it our all. We gave it our best shot. And as you know, no of Waddy were much more experienced. And they went on to win the whole thing. So you know we had a great year. We beat Killsyfe in a home final. And then we lost that one by a couple of points. And that could have went either way because of the fight that we showed. But... I also know that history tells you that you've got to go through those scenarios. It's none of what he did. You know they lost a lot of finals before they won it last year.
0: Yeah, you're right. And as you said, you know you're you're playing uh, loss in the grand final almost. you feel, set you up for that winning one, um, as a coach. But back to your your playing days. So you played obviously, as you said, 289 games for three teams. Um, so the path that seems. Not well travelled at that point Was you know Going overseas Going to Europe Or going to the States Did that Ever enter your mind at all To maybe go Travel overseas And play elsewhere Or was Was that a path That sort of Aussies weren't really Accustomed to yet
1: Well There weren't many Going overseas Probably an opportunity I missed um, When I was about 19 I could have went To the US uh, On a tour With our senior inspectors team And I opted not to go Because I was actually doing an apprenticeship, me electrical apprenticeship, and it just would sort have of set me back too far because most of us used to work as we do at our level um, with what we do with NBL1. Most of players work and and, uh, and play. So early days back then, you know, we were all working or studying, and I probably didn't really go fully professional until 84, 85, where it got to a point where I couldn't actually work and, and play at the level that I needed to and I was far, aspiring to play for Australia but you know it was interesting in the late 80s we went on we used to tour before the NBL season started you love this Ollie so we were we would play the US colleges and, and it was Texas Tech I had a massive game against them and Colorado uh, State uh, University uh Had a great game against them, and and, and the coaches told me later that they wanted to recruit me (laughs) uh, for college basketball. But by then, I was 28 years of age.
0: (laughs) uh, Never too late.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so, and it was from that time on, really, Aussies started to be looked at with more the late 80s and 90s. And as you know, all the kids are going to college uh, if they don't get an NBL contract these days. So it it wasn't as prevalent back then.
0: So then. You, you have your amazing playing career, you know, stuff in the in Australian squads and whatnot. When did coaching become a possible career choice for you? Obviously, you said your coaches told you that they could see you being a coach. Um, when did that sort of become an option? And was it something you tried to sort of maybe set up as your playing career was coming to an end?
1: Yeah, I really did try to set it up. Um, when I was a player in the mid-80s playing for the Spectres, I used to coach junior teams. So, and I coached uh, Broadmeadows under 16s and under 18s, so I lived out that way. Uh, I coached Tealaw. Believe it or not, I coached Andre LeMarnas <laughs> 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 when I was playing in the NBL. Yep. And he was captain capt- of my under 20 uh, Tealaw Saints team. So, you know, I had an interest in helping out, and that's, that's really how it came about. And I was just approached about coaching the junior teams and I wasn't looking at it, definitely wasn't looking at it as a career. I just did it for the love of the game and to help the clubs out. And, you know, being a player, I just know, you know, I I wasn't, I was actually playing a lot of minutes, so, you know, I was an impact player. I just, when I look back, you know, the kids loved it. I think the fact that I was coaching as well, you know, that that one of their players that they looked up to watching each week was actually coaching them so um and then when my coaching career finished i was i was recruited by brian who coach me at the Saints, to go up to brisbane and try and play a couple of years with him and it came to an end in brisbane so you know he, he told me it was time to retire uh wasn't happy like <laughs> most co- uh, most players
0: yeah
1: but uh, so i played a season in a university up there, Brisbane University or University of Queensland. We had a team, and then I needed to decide what we we're going to do because uh, my w- wife uh, was pregnant with twins, and so we decided to come back to Melbourne for family support. And then someone said to me, Ballarat was looking for a coach, and I still remember to this day ringing them. I think the day or two after they closed, but they hadn't started the interview, they said, Oh, look, we'd love to definitely interview you. So I drove from Melbourne to uh, Ballarat, and um, they gave me the job. So that's sort of where it started. But at that point in time, you know, I had my own little business going, which I got the skills from by going back to uni. I went back to uni in the mid-80s while I was playing basketball. I gave up my full-time job, but I, I needed to do something else, and I talked to players a lot about this. You've got to do something else. because uh, you know, I was just getting bored or depressed if you weren't playing well. So my wife taught me into going back to school. So I, did, I went to Victoria Uni. That, and that's really helped not helped me as a player because my mind was occupied with study as well as playing at that time. You know, taking it seriously, but that certainly helped me as a coach. And uh, so that gave me the skills to have a little, little sport and recreation management business. So I did that, and then I like coached Ballarat for three years, which obviously led to eventually an NBL job because of the success we had with Ballarat.
0: So that yeah the way that you've entered coaching there that's something that always interests me because you know the players there's or there's sort of a clear pathway for players it seems to you know get to the top level you make certain teams as a junior and and you sort of climb the ranks is there is there a coaching pathway or is it sort of almost make your own path as you it seems that you did um can you talk me through you know the pathway maybe then compared to now and what you had to go through.
1: I think the pathways uh, there's a lot more opportunities today. There's obviously many more associations, many clubs. Uh, although we had did, did have M- more NBL teams back then, uh, but they're building towards that happening again, which is great to see. But we always had you know first second tier competition uh, competition for people to be involved in coaching. So. I guess my coaching pathway was as a player, um, well, as I mentioned before, was just me getting involved in helping out junior clubs. Uh, and, and, and from that point of view, I didn't know if I was any good or not. Obviously, I was a competitive coach as much as I was a competitive player. You know, it was, it was representative coaching. It wasn't domestic coaching. Domestic, as you know, domestic basketball is about fun, although you will get some and women that take it pretty serious.
0: Yeah, I've seen a fair share of blokes that take it maybe a tad bit (laughs) too serious for a domestic game.
1: But, you know, that sort of stuff in tournaments is about fun. But once you're involved in representative basketball, you know, they're they're looking for extrinsic rewards. They are looking for trophies or they're looking for success to, as you say, to maybe build a career. Um, But, you know, I just coached the junior teams for love. But when I was finished playing, uh, then I was actually approached about coaching and you know, as I said, I, I, I approached it because I love the game. So I think what helped me being a point guard. You know, when you're in, when you're a point guard on a team, and if you're any good, it's not just about you. It's about you know reading the game, have, being connected with the coach, making sure that the right plays are run at the right time. Uh, you know, who's hot, who's cold, recognizing all, all that. So you're basically an on-court coach, and I think that played a big role in preparing me for coaching in, in giving me a feel for the game and understanding for the game tempo control and just overall understanding you know what it takes to win and also knowing what you know why you lose so being in that role you know it's a bit like a quarterback I guess on an on a, on a NFL team your extension of the coach I, I reckon that's where that's where uh, you know my abilities come from uh, you hear, obviously, there are coach so good coaches that haven't played before. But I think one of the bonuses, if you are any good at coaching, not to say that, as we know, all all players make good coaches. Some don't. But if they do, you've got to feel. Like So when you talk, oh, I think when you talk to the players about pressure, it helps when you've known you've helped that pressure before. So you have empathy. Uh, you, you understand it. So I think that's helped me definitely as a player. But certainly... You know, as I started to coach, then you, you know, you want to educate yourself to become a better coach. So when I started, I, I went to every coaching clinic, Bobby Knight, when he came out here. I listened to coaches. I read books. I, And I still do, you know, today, to this day. Because at the moment you stop trying to improve, you're done. So, uh, and, and, you know, I think those that think that what they did many, many years ago is still going to work, they're going to struggle. You always got to be looking for that edge. And it's not just about strategy, it's about communication. It's all changed. That's a big thing that's changed, how you communicate, how I always communicate with the, how you communicate with players today. Um, and, and it's ever-changing. You know, who knows? Who would have thought when I played, there was no shot clock, then there was a 35-second shot clock, then there was a 30-second shot clock. And as you know, in 2001, it went to 24 seconds. And I think coaching Wollongong Hawks, uh, we adjusted that better. There might be a 20-second shot clock one day. I keep saying to people, the speed they play the game with now, who knows You know, what can change about the game. So, there's, you know, you compare the pathway today, these days, you know, there's so many educational programs more so than what it was back then. You know, you got in with a team, you was an assistant, and, and that's what you still want to try and do today. But there's so many programs. You know, in the state programs, they do a wonderful job of coach education. As you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of coach education clinics with our rep coaches. So, and with our, you know, with our tools that we have, with our IT tools that we have with computer and, and, and it, to be able to do stuff online without having to physically attend it, uh, creates greater opportunities as well for people to, to, for the, you know, improve their knowledge and understanding. Uh, so there's so many opportunities, yeah. More opportunities and developing those pathways today. What it was back then.
0: So that's a good a good bridge to what I was going to talk about next. So just the way that coaching's changed over the years. So you've been in the game a long time. Um, how have you, you know, how much has coaching changed, and how much have you, as you said, you've had to sort of continue to educate yourself? How much have you had to roll with these changes and change the way that you approach coaching to make sure that you know you stay. Relevant in the in the game.
1: Yeah, look when I when I I think back to when I played and the instructions I were given, they're all verbal. There was nothing written. There was no video.
0: <laughs> Very different now. Very different
1: now. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you think back here as a player. We didn't have video probably until um, really the mid 80s All right. So and, and and so you went on your experiences of playing your opponents and just finding out about them and actually watching them play. As you know, these days, we can get a video on anybody. Uh, and there's an analysis, there's statistics,
0: there's analytics.
1: And, I, you know, I, that's important to know, but it's not everything. Um, and the reason why I say that, you'll, you'll find a lot of coaches are making their way through the pathways. In particular, there's quite a few coaches that haven't played before that do rely on analytics. And studying the game, but I still think the, the, the day of the game, you've got to have a feel.
2: Mm-hmm. You've
1: got to be able to make adjustments during the game. You can't just rely on analytics because the analytics can be certainly, you know, numbers don't lie, but on a day they can. And I'll give you an example, Ollie. For example, you know, there's a big, big, you know, thing about playing drops uh, to take away the three point shot. Um, what we call drops, defending an on-ball. Mm. So, you know, players are told to play, guard the guard tight, trail them over the top of the screen, and drive them into, um, you know, the bigs that are standing under the basket. Now, I've been an advocate for a long time that you need to know how to shoot a three. You need to know how to get to the rim. And, you know, I've heard this phrase, the tree or the tee. That's what kids have got to learn. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt, yeah, that's okay. We would definitely want to teach them the tree and, and get into the rim. But you need that mid-range jumper because if that's what's been taken away, you need to take what what you're given. And Kawhi Leonard's probably the greatest example of that still still knocking down the mid-range jumper, the game-winners. So, and my point is that you can go into a game and say, we're going to stick with this the whole game, um, but you'll get beat because good coaches will see it. So what they'll do is they'll extend the screen further out. So that when the plate guard does get hit in the screen, they're still going to get a three. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they'll, they'll manipulate the screen. Uh, you know, just what we call flip it. Come off once. A- so you've got to be able to change it up during the game. So if you're starting to get beat with that, my, my thing is, well, you can't play drops, and, and I think you know, when I look back at the Australian team playing Spain and playing France, if you go back in the World Cup, you know we we, we tended to stay in that drop for to, to a point. It was too late. You know, the point started to hit threes, and, and and that's probably an example of what I'm talking about. It's not it's not being criticism, critical here, but I think you've got to be able to game coach on the day. I'm just saying, the coaches out there, just because you get an analysis of statistics that say this. It's happened and you're going to win more games than you lose, that's true, but you might have to adjust that to win the most important game because sometimes players you know, you might also study a player, and I've heard this before, stand off that player, they can't shoot the three, and all of a sudden you stand off and they hit one, their coffers up and they're banging five threes for the night Mm. (laughs) But, but the analytics said they can't shoot three. so the point is why into the analytics but have an open mind to make adjustments during
0: the game? Well, I think you, you probably see that with the Houston Rockets the last few years in that so you know they've they're bought into the analytics. They're only shooting three-pointers or getting to the rim and then trying to get to the free throw line if all else fails, which gets you so far because you know, the numbers, as you say, don't lie. But then when it comes down to the nitty-gritty in a tough playoff game, it's become unstuck for them. Um, so well,
1: this is y- interesting, too. They've, they've gone and recruited small players. So let's remember, if, if, that, if those three-point shots contested miss, then you need to rebound to get second shots. And that's where they fall down. They don't have the rebounds. The game's just not about shooting. It's about defense and rebounding. And if you talk to the great coaches, and you read books on it, like Chuck Daly, he's one of the ones who's no longer with us, one of the greatest coaches of all time. I've sat with Larry Brown. Uh, he, he, he hates the fact that everyone is just on and on about the Olympics. He talks about coaching the day of the game, and he talks about making adjustments. And if you look, talk to these guys, defence and rebounding. So even though, you know, we just talked about how they want to defend to take away the three and the drops, uh, that's the reason why he defended that way. So if you aren't making shots, if you haven't got the size to rebound, you're not going to get second shots, which is important to winning the game as well. And that's where the Houston Rockets are struggling, as you know.
0: They're too small. Yeah, yeah, correct. And it's interesting you brought up Kwon Leonard earlier. So, you know, I watched him today. I'm sure you watched him as well for a period before they blew out Dallas. But so Quiet can shoot the three when required, but he's almost gone against the mold and he just loves a, a mid-range jump shot. And because, you know, because of his reach and, you know, his big hands, it's so effective and he doesn't miss. So it's sort of, I don't know, it, it, it depends on on who you are and whether you want to buy into the analytics or if you you know you're so comfortable in what you've been doing, and it's obviously effective. He's a you know two time champ and two time finals and So um, it's an interesting sort of battle, which well, road to go down.
1: I'm not saying I don't buy into the analytics. I'm into the analytics, but I'm saying you've got to have to be make adjustments. make adjustments. okay. So you're down one, you're down one right with uh 15 seconds to go. Are you going to shoot a three or are you going to take the best shot?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You're going to take the best shot. Yeah. So what are you going to, You're going going to back it out and shoot a three because of the analytics or are you going to come off and just try and get the best shot and if it's a mid-range jumper? You're going to shoot it. Obviously, if you need a three, you're going to work to get a three. But you just got to be careful that we're not conditioning players to pass up on a mid-range jumper. Chris Paul's another one that's just superb in coming off screen. Yep. We need to make sure we teach the kids all the skills to shoot the three, shoot the two, the pull-up. And let me tell you, the pull-up is one of the hardest things to guard. One of the things, as an Australian, always got the toughest defensive assignment, to guarding a Rocky Smith or a Cal Bruton or an Al Green. Those guys didn't just get to the rim. They could pull up and shoot jump shots, and not just threes, but twos. And when you go flat out and you're running backwards and someone just pulls up on a dime, it's hard to stop. And that's what, that's quite Leonard. Now He can shoot the three, get to the rim, or he just comes off that screen when they trail and he just shoots a pull-up at the foul line. Um, you know, he, he's got the all-round game, and the best players usually do. Uh, they can do it
2: all.
0: Now, one thing I wanted to quiz you on was um, the how the relationship between a coach and a player has um, built from when you were playing um, to where you are now. So, I mean... I'm talking footy terms here, but, you know, you hear a lot in the footy during the 70s, 80s, and even 90s, a lot of, you know, coaches very stern, give a lot of sprays, you know, almost seemed like that personal relationship might not be there as much as it seems to be today, like compared to, say, a Richmond with Damien Hardwick who seems to be best mates with all of his players. Have you seen much of a change in the coach-player relationship in your years in basketball?
1: Yeah, look, even in the early days, as you say, because there wasn't a strategy, it was more about motivating the players and make sure they played hard. It was still strategy, don't get me wrong, but I think the focus is more about getting players to play hard every minute, which is still very important today, of course. Um, and if you were playing hard, yeah, you usually topped it. And even I noticed change for me as a captain. When I was captain of the, uh, the Spectres, it was in the 80s, I actually went to the coach and we had some young players and people would know this name, Darren Lucas, Stephen Lenard, who got rookie of the year, who and in particular Darren went on to have a, a long career uh with the South East Melbourne Magic when you joined together with the Saints. So he was a rookie when I was captain of the team. I know they were very, very nervous, uh, because you know, Baza, we were used to him, so he's a very assertive, aggressive coach, very vocal. Um, but they were really nervous and struggling. And I ended up having to go to him and tap and say, "Baz, you know, can you look at, um, <laughs> you know, just adjusting your how your is because the the kids are scared." And yeah. you know, at, at first he didn't really handle it that well. What are you talking about? You know, but then he, he got what I was talking about, and he, he made those adjustments. It, it was hard for him because, it, you know, he he. He, his whole life, he'd been an aggressive player, been an aggressive coach in you know, how he communicated, and and I think that was an adjustment that probably helped him in the end because he ended up coaching Australia. But you know, his probably Basil was probably known as one of the toughest coaches going around. I'm certainly glad I played under him because you know, any, he didn't he didn't want anyone to take shortcuts. He he didn't like people if you were soft. Um, and as you know, like if you get getting in a highly competitive environment, they're important, very, very important traits for you to win. Mm-hmm. If you take shortcuts or if you're soft in any sport, you're not going to be successful. So, but, it's how you communicate really to, to get people to play hard and play with toughness. Like, some players will just, as you know, if you get into them, they'll just give up and go to water or, you know, just won't take it the right way. So, But then there's some players, depending on their upbringing and who they are. For me, when the coach got into me, it didn't bother me. You know, I I took it as a challenge, as a lot of other players I did. But depending on their makeup, their personal makeup, obviously everyone's different. And probably, as I said, the lessons for me were me having to go to my coach and talk to him about, which is pretty tough to do, you know, Mm.
2: because
1: at that time, he's recognized one of the best coaches going around. You're saying, hey, can you make some adjustments? And I was even nervous going to him about it. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you know? yeah. my goal was just to you know, try and help us win and get everybody comfortable because we had a young team. So, that, and going back there, I think that was a lesson for me. And I was studying psychology at the time at Victoria Uni. So I actually talked to Bazza about, hey, this is what I'm learning from a leadership point of view, a communication point of view. He can said, you, can you give me some of your papers to read? So I did, you know, and, um, you know, and going back to me going to uni, I reckon if I didn't go to uni and study psychology, uh, all that type of stuff, maybe I would have been coaching like early days of bad, just relying on, you know, everyone's got to play hard, everyone's got to be tough. So I think it was the mid 80s when things started to change. In you know, answer to your question, Ollie, it's a long answer, but that's a personal experience that, that I can validate that's when changes started through and I talked about players being different today. Players are always different. And I noticed the difference from myself from, you know, starting off in the late seventies to early eighties to the guys in the mid eighties. So and as you know, we all change. Society changes. I, I remember my grandparents telling me how easy I had it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. You know, but my my grandfather was in two world wars. So no yeah. wonder he was telling me yeah. how easy I had it. Yeah. You know? So uh, and you hear that today? Yeah, I was so,
0: thinking, so I th- feel like that's just a um, generational thing. Everyone, everyone else had a easier, a harder upbringing than the than the one that they have yeah. today.
2: And so, so with
1: my study, and so certainly when I when I became a coach, uh, players would tell you to the point where I, I I think it's I don't mind if they say I over communicate. I usually try and meet with each player, at, you know. Have a discussion with them. I was doing this early days, and maybe I was ahead of my time. Um, sitting down with players, setting goals with them, talking to them about you know their matchups. I'm, I'm going back to the, to the late you know mid '90s, and I was doing all that now. And now we progress that. Nothing's changed with that. If you're a good coach, you've got that communication. You progress that with your technology. You know, yeah, there's
2: yeah. your video
1: and-, and your analysis, and now analytics as well. So it's just a progression. Um, that things get added on, but as far as the kids go today, uh, there's tough kids and there's kids that you yeah, have to um, coach them and manage them and teach them how to play tough. Like the other thing that was quite common, we just talked about it. Majority of the kids played footy and basketball back then. Uh, to quite a late age these days. They're making the decisions earlier mm-hmm. So yeah, you you know, those, those players, players that played footy on the other side of the coin You'll find that they were really aggressive physically
2: mm-hmm. So
1: if you've got a basketball that hasn't played a contact sport You actually have to teach them how to be physical
2: Yeah so Just because
1: no doesn't mean they're soft So there's so much goes into it these days But at the end of the day, it's about players You know, for me, play hard, play smart Play as a team. Those three things don't change it's just that what 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 the actions are under those three things. Play hard, what does that mean? Well, for me, that means play with intensity every minute of the game, not just record it. Just play smart, what does that mean? I'll understand your role, understand the strength. So we, you know, we can just put all these things under it that have been added over the years of what it means and be part of the team. And that's still one of the toughest things to do is to get everybody on the same page, accept their role and play as a team. People think it just happens. The good coaches, only the good
0: coaches get that to happen. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And it's obviously worked for you because, you know, you, you've you gone to, you've coached in Ballarat, Wollongong and, and the Gold Coast, um, three places that probably before and after you've been there haven't been overly successful places. So um, how much, how like great is it for you to look back and know that you've had a Impact on creating a winning culture in places Especially like the Gold Coast Where as a professional sporting team It's near on impossible to be competitive It seems
1: <laughs> Well that was scary I, And it's funny you touch on that No one's really asked me much about the Gold Coast It was only there two years So when I went up there The thing, the fear I had most was As you know Ollie And I know this No team had ever played finals There was in a national competition yep. So And I, I let the players know this And we couldn't get the best players we got a few good players, but uh, we built and it was a, a new team. So for me, it was about, the, I think you touched on it a word before, culture. So I got Terry, you know, we talked about friends. Tony Shaw, Collingwood captain, uh, grand final. I got Tony to come up and talk to the team. I had Taekwondo champion come up, talk to him about, you know, why they were successful. And obviously, from Tony's point of view, he talked about the character, of the person, the role you had to play and being part of a team. Because the the biggest danger, obviously, when you put a new team together, is having time to develop team chemistry and get them to understand their roles and just support each other and buy into each other. The other thing is, on the Gold Coast, when you uh, did the history, there were teams that were on top of the ladder halfway through the season, and by the end of the season, they never made the final. Well, none of that. So, the research said about that was that they got ahead of themselves, got felt good about do good about themselves and party. So mm-hmm. we talked about, you know, okay, what's it take to be successful? So we had action plans. And one of the big things was to actually enjoy success when it came, Made sure we stay professional on and off the court and next, not get caught up in the, the hype of, of, of what the Gold Coast was about and partying. And, and, you know, that was a conscious effort. So we put a lot of work in. I, I brought uh, a friend of mine in. Ray McLean from leading teams to help develop our, as you know, has worked with Sydney uh, Twines and AFL team. So I put a lot of work in just with culture and, and chemistry, and felt that I got enough players with with enough abilities in their roles to be successful. And I tell you now, that first year was one of my most enjoyable coaching experiences because you know we were on track. I think we were twelve and five, and then unfortunately, not many people would know one of my players had a stroke. And we didn't know wow. his stroke was fine. And uh, you know, he had to be we didn't know his stroke. We just thought he was fatigued. We are in Townsville. We came to Mel when he did end up playing and then we found out he had a stroke. And so then it took us three or four weeks to replace him was an import. So he dropped a few games. We were second or third on the ladder mm. that year as a new franchise team. I really believe if he was healthy and things were going, we were a dead set chance of winning it in our first year, but as you know, we made the finals. We still made the finals. And so we became the first team ever in any sport to make play finals on the Gold Coast. And so the biggest challenges for teams on the Gold Coast is not only about, you know, I think, getting it done on the field or on the court uh, with your abilities. It's about maintaining the professionalism.
2: Because it is
1: such a great place uh, for people, especially young people who try themselves mm. and get caught up, you know, too much. Outside of your sport to, uh, you know, take away your focus of what you what you're supposed to be there
0: for. Yeah, I think I'm a, a big basketball fan, but yeah, a footy fan as well. And um, yeah, watching the Suns the last few years is, I mean, it's almost humorous in a way because you know it just it fell into the mold of the Gold Coast like, that sporting teams just don't succeed there. So for you to have a have the one team that's made the finals, it's a nice feather in your cap. would have thought.
1: Oh, absolutely! And I was disappointed. We had enormous amount of injuries the next year, and as you know, sometimes just that one bad year, you know, people want to make a change. But we could have built a successful dynasty there, I believe. But it comes back to support as well. You know, we had what started off with a, a three person ownership. After the first year, we only had a one person ownership, and I think that really impacted uh, not only from a financial perspective, from it from a decision-making point of view. For example, Tom Tate, who's the current mayor today, was one of the owners, and he was a great guy, and he had to step away. And I think that hurt us. Another guy that stepped away because of um, illness was John Carson, who's probably the root. John Carson was uh, the owner of the Willow Gold Hawks when, we were, when I was successful there. He was a great owner, and he's one of the ones that encouraged me to go up there and, and coach, and then he got ill. Um, so, you know, I lost a couple of good owners, I think, you know, they were very stable, great decision-makers. So, you know, that impacted on us on the peripheral as well.
0: Um, so one thing I really wanted to, to quiz you about was, so you were, you've obviously coached men your whole life and you're an assistant coach with the Boomers um, for a while and then you moved into coaching the Opals. Um, was that, did you have to change... The way you coach. Do you have to, you have to coach females and, and males differently? Uh, can you sort of talk me through that a little bit?
1: Yeah, in some ways you do. Uh, well, what was interesting, I, I coach, I, I've got three daughters, so I coached a lot of girls. You know, naturally you get going back to coaching. Even when I was coaching the NBL, I would coach my daughters playing basketball. <laughs> so I had experience in coaching girls and even at the youth league and what was decided at that particular time, the Opals or the Hustle Australia just put it out there that regardless whether you coach men or women, they just put out interviews to uh, try and obtain the best coach. it was probably the most extensive interview process that I've ever been involved with. Uh, I had an interview where I presented a plan. And part of my job was not only coach the Opals, was actually the head, head program coach, Basically, of the centre of excellence, which was used to be called the AIS, mm-hmm. so I had to oversee the scholarship holders or the kids that we'd bring in, the girls that we'd bring in for the future. Uh, I'd have to put in a, style, a line of solar play between the under seventeen, nineteen, and the Opals. And so, I, I was coaching the Opals, but it was also head of the program. And as you know, or you might not know, we won three world championship medals. You know, I appointed the coaches or played played a major role in appointing coaches, Paul Gorris for the under-19s, and also appointed him as our center of excellence coach at the time, and Shannon Seaball for the under-17s, which was very controversial when I appointed him, made the final decision to appoint him as the under-17s coach ahead of one or two WNBL coaches. And then I was the Opals coach, but all three of us won World Championship medals. You know, Paul won a bronze in the under-19s. I'd won a bronze with the Opals without a lot of the stars, Christy Harrower, Lawrence Jackson, uh, a lot of them have retired. So we real rebuilt so that that's another highlight and then what was what I was very proud of was Shannon winning the gold. We'd never won a medal in the other seventeen uh with his program. But he, he, he led the team to a gold medal. So, you know, we just did nice to take the Olympics and had that one point loss to um Serbia uh which which, which cost us going on. Um, to the final four. And as you know, we hadn't lost a game in the round. So so during that four-year period, um was a very successful period. Now, coaching, coaching women, one of the things I talked to the girls and or, or ladies, you know, the very first um, meeting I had, we had 35 players in camp, and we talked about the fact that I'd coached men more than women. They didn't actually know that I'd coached girls before. But I said to them, you think I should change as a coach? And most of the girls knew me, you know, we knew each other. Like, even at the Olympics, uh, even though I was with the boomers, I'd support the Opals and go to their games. I knew, I knew a lot of the girls personally. They said, no, we just want you to be you. But one of the things I didn't know I had to do differently, I definitely had to communicate differently in respect to, I, I felt that, you know, and, and I don't it might be taken the wrong way or the right way, Um you know, to make sure I was very analytical in how I communicated,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I could still be strong at times, but make sure that you know my emotions were totally under control, because yeah. the girls and a this way can be more emotional. Um, you know, coaching girls cry a lot more than guys when you're coaching. Not to say that some guys don't cry, but you know, when when girls express their emotions out, it will be more and cry. So, you know, I I think that's an adjustment I needed to make certainly or, or pay attention to in how I communicated that so I didn't bring out the wrong emotion, you know. Um, but he's saying that, whether you win or lose, you know, <laughs> girls will cry with joy as well. So yeah. um, I, I think the big adjustment was, you know, making sure that uh, that communication was right. But he's saying that, what are, the difference I noticed, um, So, for example, I would have organised meetings with male players, as I always did, before... You know, before game and I would be in that room and I'd put a clock on and I'd make sure I would go over 10 or 15 minutes per meeting and wouldn't be just me I'd have me assistant in the meeting and part of that would be about you know the plan for the uh, game um, but if, you know like if you're them on a week to week basis be asking them how they're going on off the court all that sort of stuff but what I found is is the guys a lot of the time happy to have those meetings in 10 or 15 minutes but the girls wanted to talk longer Mm-hmm. They they actually were very analytical and just enjoyed the conversation and preparation more. So you were <laughs> so there was one or two we used to put towards the end, uh, and we used to end up having to kick them out because they wanted to be in those meetings, those individual meetings, <laughs> way too long <laughs> from our yeah. point of view. So yeah, you know, and I think girls asked a lot more questions than the boys in regard to you know why, when, how, all that sort of stuff. A lot of guys just say, "Tell me what what you want me to do," and that's the other, you know, that's the other thing that I'm not into. I want to ask them questions, get them to think, players to think for themselves. Because if they think for themselves, they're obviously developing, um, you know, developing themselves to become students in the game. Um, where I think that it tends to be more of a trait with the girls to ask more questions and, and talk, you know, talk more. Like, like Darnell B, I don't know if you remember Darnell i I'll eat, play with Adelaide. You know, I had him. You know, he would come in with his suit and hardly have anything written down and just say, Tell me what you want me to do, coach. And I go, No, no. I want you to think about what you got to do. I want you to plan. Um, and, and then he called me up, you know, I think it was 10 or well, about a few years ago and he goes, I get what you're trying, what was trying to do now. I'm a coach now. I love the fact I'm using what you those sheets you gave me, I'm using that now. (laughs) (laughs) And and Charles Thomas was another one, you know, from the States. He sent me some messages saying how, you know, they've taken what they've learned and and put it into their coaching. But the girls, from that point of view, that's that's where I see it a bit different. But let me tell you, some of the girls I coach, a lot of the guys, if not tougher, competitive. They've got those competitive streaks. You know, the personality... Uh, all the same, just in difference, you know, male and female. Sometimes the personalities are the same.
0: Yeah, and so the other the other area I wanted to discuss was that you've, you've done everything in terms of the professional league here and and at the national level. Was coaching overseas ever an option for you or something you wanted to explore? Because I feel you know, players playing over there is discussed a lot, but you don't hear heaps about coaches. Um, you know, apart from, you know, your Brett Brown's and Brian Gorgians and those kind of guys. Was that ever an option for you?
1: Yeah, well, as you know, Brett you know, was born in the States, so I, I think it's easier if you're from the States. And I've got my friend who's an assistant coach or was an assistant coach, of the Opals Damien Potter. Uh, he's travelled over see after the Opals now and gotten out of Australia. He had a he had a stint with the Kings and as you know, uh, that only lasted a couple of years. And I said the young coach, you probably need to go overseas. So he did. But he coached two G League teams and now he's on the, he's, a, he's a, one of the assistants on with the Chicago Bulls, which I'm pretty proud of him. He's um, saying that he doesn't have any kids. What stopped a lot of us from going overseas is just responsibility to families. Because when you go overseas and coach, in particular in the NBA, you're never home. Mm. So uh, it's quite a big sacrifice. And you know, to get into the NBA at the beginning, you're not going to be paid a whole lot of money. It's not, it's just the, the top coaches and the big programs, they get, they get paid a lot. But I think a big thing that stops us from going overseas is the fact that, you know, we're committed to our family, uh, and to stay here in the game. But in saying that, Ollie, it's funny, you know, it's something, even though, uh, I'm, I'm starting to get a bit older, I've still got plenty of time left and something, I'm starting to think about because the kids are growing up. Is, is maybe going overseas for a couple of years of coaching, so I, I definitely haven't ruled that out. And with the communication with with Damien, he feels that I need to get over there. Uh, but it's a matter of the timing and, and being involved in the right program. And I think something I you know, I, it's funny you say that. I'm actually considering doing that maybe in the next couple of years. Uh, even at my age, I you know, you, you, there's a lot of respect over there for your experience and knowledge, and there's a lot more jobs obviously overseas and what
0: there is here. Well, you've heard it here first, everyone. Big head chats. Brennan Joyce could be uh, could be heading overseas, which we would love to see. Um, but you, you mentioned your family. That's something I wanted to touch on. So, you know, you've, is it four kids you've got, three daughters and a son? <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. So
0: how did you go managing, you know, a fa- balancing a family life um, with being a professional coach? Because I can't imagine it's easy, you know, fitting all of that into one day.
1: Well, most of that credit got sort to of go to my wife. Uh, you know, I've been married for 38 years and uh, she, she played a bit of basketball. I first met her looking at her in a basketball state, I well, that looked alright. <laughs> um, <laughs> back in Albert Park, uh, Park, back in the day. That's where most of us met our wife. Um, and so, you know, I got married pretty young at 23 and we had, you know, as you mentioned, we got the four kids, but Though Joe's been an inspiration to me, He's the one that encouraged me to go back and study when I gave up the game, sacrificed a bit for me to give up my job and support me for a few months. I tried to make an eighty four Olympic team and eighty eight Olympic team. So there's a period there where I just totally focused on basketball. I didn't make it and that, you know, I think that's where I have empathy for players too miss it out on Australian teams, all that type of the stuff. You know, you go through so you know exactly what it feels like to miss out. I think that helps you as well uh, in understanding the most of the coaches. But look, um, you know, I've got to a point where at Wollongong, all you know, my son he's first played his first couple of games here at Ballarat. You uh, get the other kids are a bit younger, but he started his basketball here. And then we went to Wollongong and Illawarra. All kids played rep basketball. Maybe it's four of them playing rep basketball. It was a twig girl, so I actually couldn't go and watch my son play. So I'd take one daughter. I was coaching in the NBL where I could, to her games. It's different in New South Wales. You've got new cars, especially in the country. You go to the country, you go away for the weekend, take the kids away, you get to know the parents. Joe would have to take two of the kids. And then we rely on, you know, usually the uh, the coach, whoever being coach was, he went off with them. So that was pretty tough. Because uh, like, we couldn't really see everybody. And then there be some weekends I wasn't there, obviously, coached away in the NBL, so Joanne would have to manage all that himself and, you know, the girls and Dan, they all made state teams for New South Wales as juniors. And uh, so I missed a bit of that, I, you know, and, and it was really, I, I, got, I got to as many days as I could, be around as much as I could. Um, but a lot of that credit balance and all that comes back to my wife, um, you know, who's a, and she was working and studying as well. Like, she's a professor, uh, you know, she's got a PhD, nursing education, so she's a smart lady. So it's been a balancing act for her as much as it was for me, but I wouldn't have been able to do it without her. And you can see why we couldn't go overseas. I mean, that mm. is, there's no way. I was probably, you know, um, you know from a coaching point, it would just be too difficult.
0: Yeah, it, you know, it's definitely, I mean, I'm just talking about personal experience. I know my dad only played local footy, but, you know, he had, like you, had kids pretty young. And so, you know, footy, he retired, you know, before he was 30 sort of thing, uh, to have more time with us kids. So I can only imagine what, you know, that's just multiplied by a million in a professional <laughs> in a professional setting. So I can't imagine, um, you know, how hard it is to balance time um, with your job. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about was, so I remember watching your son play in Ballarat. I'm not sure what level your daughters ended up playing at, but how... Um, how hard was it as a, you know, so you're a coach, how hard was it to sort of, did you sort of want to let them do their, make their own path, do their own thing? Or was it, did you want to step in sometimes and, you know, give your two cents worth because of, you know, the stature you had in Australian basketball?
1: Yeah, like, um, I guess you just uh, would well, share your knowledge where you are. I, I definitely tried not to force any opponent to this day, let him make his own decisions. He did have an opportunity to go to colleges, and his manager told him he'd be better off playing for me for <laughs> 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 his development. When we look back in time; probably he may have probably got, a, you know, probably should have went to college because people just think that, you know, depending on who you are, you just, he, he got favoritism. But he never got any favoritism along the way. He always had to work his backside off, and but give him a lot of credit for making his own decisions and. You know, he he went away, and and even when I wasn't coaching, I had a a stint with the Sydney Kings uh, for a couple of years. Uh, And then he obviously came here and played at Ballarat when I wasn't here. and came back home, played here under Guy Malloy, uh, played in Canberra. So he's really made his own way. But obviously he knows I know the game, so he's asked me questions along the way. Um, I've given him advice where I can, but at the end of the day, I'm always like, not just him, but all the girls as well. Um, you know, be, trying to be careful, letting them make their own way, letting them make their own decisions.
0: Well, Brendan, it's been uh, great to to pick your mind today uh, about a lot of uh, basketball and coaching topics and sport topics in general and also to look back at the at the career you've had, especially as a player, because I think uh, that might not get mentioned enough uh, when we hear the name Brendan Joyce. So uh, thanks for joining me today, mate, and uh, I look forward to hopefully seeing you and the Miners bring home a championship soon. Don't, worry, don't really
1: Appreciate it. Thanks for having us.